The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. We're still in chapter one. Yes, I know. Yes, I know this three-week series, because there was three chapters in Titus, has become, I don't know how long it's going to be, but uh, we have to take however long the Holy Spirit wants us to, to, to make it through this. I don't want to hurry up, because man had a schedule, um, and, and I think every, every time that we've been in Titus here, it's, it's been helpful to me, so at least you've been able to watch Jesus help me, if it hasn't helped you, but... Um, we're going to continue this week in our series on Titus, and uh, we've said it's a pastoral epistle, right? So this is the Apostle Paul writing instructions to Titus. He left him on an island called Crete uh, to finish up some of the church planning work that they had done there. They had already been through, kind of ran a tour. Um, a bunch of people must have met Jesus, so now uh, Paul is instructing Titus on how to bring some order to this, establish elders. We went through elder qualifications. Um, And now we find ourselves in verse 10 here, okay? So I'm going to read verses 10 through 16, and uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That was fun. Uh, here we see a display of righteous anger on the part of Paul the Apostle. Okay, If some of you have watched, you know, if, if most of the Bible teaching that you've been a part of has been stuff you've seen on TV, you probably haven't even, you didn't even know verses like this were in the Bible. Because people stay away from this type of stuff. Well, that sounds angry. Yes, he is angry, okay, and we're going to talk about why. Uh, We read last week that the qualifications of an elder, that they cannot be quick-tempered or violent, okay, Uh, and and Paul wrote those qualifications, so he wasn't violating them here, Uh, but the fact that the Bible says that elders, leaders in God's church should not be quick-tempered or violent, it's often the source of overcorrection and misunderstanding, so sometimes people read those things, they read those elder qualifications, and... uh, They assume then that the nicest and the most amiable fellows among us uh, are the best suited for leadership among God's people. That's not always true. Paul is angry, and he's angry because he has a shepherd's heart. The same way a shepherd would be angry if sheep from his flock were being stolen, preyed upon by wolves, and drug off and eaten, that that would make a shepherd angry. Uh, and, And he is angry. A true shepherd will be deeply troubled by deceptions and false doctrines that harm the people of God, who he has been entrusted by King Jesus to care for and protect. 
And this is what we're hearing coming from uh, Pastor Paul here. We also see in this letter to Titus and throughout his writings uh, that as Paul is being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, he takes on more and more the father heart of God. We see him use that language in the beginning of this as he calls Titus, uh, his true son in a common faith, he addresses Timothy that way. He uses language when he's writing to different churches that, that he gave birth to them through the gospel. So he has this fatherly anointing as the more and more he becomes like God, the more and more he is conformed to the image of God, the more and more he thinks of things through that father lens. And the reality is, and what you're seeing here, is that a good father is not going to stand idly by and watch his children be hurt or taken advantage of. As a matter of fact, a good father is going to be furious in that situation. See, some of you don't think God or godly people can be angry, and we're going to work through why that's not true. Uh, just as a point of confession, I'll tell you on that point, you know, kind of fathers not standing idly by where their kids get hurt. I, I literally cannot even go to the doctor when the kids get shots. That, I can't do it. Like, if the gutters need cleaned out, there's all kinds of stuff. Natalie doesn't even have to ask about. I'm going to go do it, no problem. But if the kids need shots, man, I can't go. Because if I'm in there and dude sticks one of my kids with a needle and my kid starts screaming like he's hurting him, I'm going to end up choking him with a stethoscope. <laughs> I know that's not right. I'm not in any way justifying my behavior. That's why I don't go, right? I'm making no provision for my flesh, Romans 13, 14. I'm staying out of the situation. But if someone hurts my kids, man, it's bad day for them right? You can amen that. That's okay. Cause I don't go hurt them. That's, I want to make sure to say that, right? I stay home. Natalie takes them and I get to hear about it. But, uh, I, I wouldn't really choke them, but I really can't go because it, it wouldn't, my blood pressure would just, it wouldn't work. So, um, I know that they aren't really harming the kids, but the fatherly instinct in me doesn't always heed logic. Uh, so there you go. Um, but here we see as Paul's expressing himself that, that, sin and lies and the pain that they cause, those things should cause men of God to be angry. Okay? This is, and this is not a departure from the character of God that we see revealed in Jesus, who is the chief shepherd. Okay? Uh, in John 2, when shysters were taking advantage of folks at the temple, they were overcharging for sacrifices, they were just in general disrespecting God and his people uh, for the sake of dishonest gain, Jesus braided a whip and went to Kraken. Okay? Again, you've probably never heard that verse on TV, but it happened. What emotion do you imagine perfect, sinless, wonderful Jesus was feeling when he braided that whip and started cracking it? Of all the emotional range, where do you think he was at? I think he was angry. Did he sin? No. Okay. Some of you aren't sure yet. We'll keep going. Um, when religious people were leading people astray and they were leading them away from Jesus so that they could maintain their status and the affirmation they craved from people, Jesus said things like, you brood of vipers, how will you escape hell? He went on to say things to them like, you guys are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. These kind of comments that Jesus had for those guys. Now, you may say, well, that's not very Christ-like to say something so mean. Problem A, I just quoted Christ. <laughs> Problem B is that the reason you think that is because you have an over-realized, like Mr. Rogers meets Winnie the Pooh Christology. <laughs> that's, 
not <laughs> a good mashup to understand the character and the complexity of the character of Jesus, okay? Um, if you didn't laugh at that, you must not know what Winnie the Pooh is, because that's funny. <laughs> so either that or you just zoned out on me, but whatever. I thought for, you know, I kind of rate my, like, I know that one will get a laugh. I don't know about that one. You guys never fail to uh, surprise me on what you won't laugh or engage with, so well done yet again. Let's keep going. Um, so the reality is that God gets mad, Jesus gets mad, uh, and God gets mad other than the Old Testament, okay? God gets mad, Jesus gets mad, men of God should get mad, but only over the right things. And no matter how angry they get, there is never justification for them to lack self-control and wisdom in the way they deal with sin and deception, right? We went through the qualifications of an elder, uh, and we know that Hebrews 13 um, says that, you know, you should take a look at the, the life that your leaders are living. If they're really following Jesus, you should try to emulate them. So if Paul is telling Titus to qualify elders by a man that is self-controlled, then that, we know that that's a standard set out for all of us that would follow Christ. And so in your anger, do not sin, right? In your anger, you're not losing control, but it, it is not a sin in itself to be angry. Um, the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, he was tough and he was tender. And so the men who serve as his under shepherds should be as well. There was times Jesus was tough. And he needed to be. And that was loving. There was times when Jesus was really, really tender. And that was loving. He was both. Let's, uh, let's take a look at verses 10 and 11 again. Uh, we're in Titus chapter 1. I'll read verses 10 and 11. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Okay, first of all, I want to clear this out of the way. This is not, uh, on the part of Paul, just kind of anti-Semitism in general. He's this of the circumcision that is talking about those that ascribe to Judaism. We know that Paul's not being anti-Semitic because what is Paul? He's a Jew, right? So that's probably not what he's after. Um, what he is saying is, in, in the group being referenced here, are those who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, or supposedly had converted, but they were teaching people that grace through faith in Christ alone was not enough, and was not sufficient for salvation. This is what ticked Pastor Paul off, okay? He's not happy, and we can tell that from the text, can't we? Um, we're going to talk more about it, but uh, Paul is also... Uh, we, we see here this, this language, Paul is not giving Titus an order uh, to put a hit on these guys when he uses the phrase, they must be silenced, okay? Uh, right, this isn't like Paul the mob boss saying, you know, hey Titus, take Bruno over there and hit them guys in the mouth with a brick, you know what I mean? That's, that's, that's not what the they must be silenced is, okay? Um, I know that's how some of you used to handle problems, and I was probably in that club too, but we don't do that anymore. Um, I read one commentator, and, and I think he was right. He says that that word, it does not imply that they're to be silenced by violence or persecution. That word usage there, it kind of became normative for the word that would be used to silence a person by reason. So kind of, they're going to forcefully let you know, you're going to stop teaching that here, right? Um, and, and give them some good reasons why, and, and kind of shut them up. But that's, that's what's going on there. They're not putting bricks on people's feet and stuff. <laughs> That's not how they're silencing folks. 
Uh, <laughs> some of you have seen too many mob movies, and you were there already, you know. Um, we also see, again, this idea of people teaching things for sordid or dishonest gain. We saw that in the qualifications of an elder, that they should not do that. Um, much of what was being taught was that the dietary requirements and the rituals of the law were still required for relationship with God, right? So Paul came preaching a gospel that you must put faith in the finished work of Christ to be saved. These guys are still holding on to, yeah, you got to do these, this dietary stuff, and you got to do this, some other stuff to your body, and... Um, here's the problem. Many of these guys knew that if trust and faith in the finished work of Christ was all that was required for reconciled relationship with God, then their jobs as experts and all the other stuff was no longer needed or relevant. You understand that? These were kind of the super spiritual gurus before, and they're like, well, hold on. If they don't need us and all of the extra super spiritual stuff that we used to teach them, well, then what do I do, right? So, uh, it's, it's kind of like a guy today trying to come and tell you, uh, oh, I, I know that you have cell phones, but, but telegraphs are better, right? Like, you'll never be able to really communicate everything you want to unless you do it on a telegraph. A cell phone's useless. You need a telegraph, and as luck would have it, I'm a master telegrapher, right? What, what kind of, what, what are you going to say to that guy? You, I mean, you'd probably be like, first of all, bro, have you even used a cell phone? Right, because it works better than a telegraph. Like, period. <laughs> Secondly, uh, why don't you use why don't you use my cell phone and call down to the enrollment office at the technical college and get yourself a new trade, brother? Because yours is obsolete. <laughs> uh, you're not going to give that guy much credence, and that's kind of the position these guys found them in, th- themselves in. And so they're they're grasping at something. The 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 sad truth is that the love of money is unfortunately the root of all kinds of evil. We know that's true. We hear that in another pastoral epistle in in the book of Timothy. Um, And many men and women throughout history have done twisted and tragic things in the name of religion to get money, right? I know that. I know there's a lot of people that won't gather with God's people at all because they've heard some story of some knucklehead doing something, telling lies or doing whatever or being dishonest, all under the name of religion of some type. Unfortunately, a lot of times, even Christianity. And all they were doing, they were in it for the money. And uh, <clears throat> they'll answer for that. Eternity's not going to go well for them uh, if they don't repent. It'd be a bad deal. Of course, the root of the love of money is pride, because with it comes prestige. And let's be honest, men like being respected by other men. And uh, men respect shiny things, right? And money buys those. Uh, it also provides comfort, Right? And pride can kind of fuel that because a self-focused person is going to set up comfort as their highest goal, which, of course, again, is pride because it's, it's about me. It's about how I feel. Um, and so, yes, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but pride, even as we've always said, pride being the mother of every other sin, the love of money flows out of a pride and, and a self-focus. Uh, let's read verses 12 through 14 together says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. I told you Pastor Paul wasn't a happy camper, didn't I? 
I mean, he's, now he's name-calling. <laughs> uh, he said earlier that whole families were being upset and their faith being messed with by these guys that were teaching things contrary to the simple and pure gospel. And he is fired up about it. And he's telling Titus, this is how I want you to handle it. Here's what these guys are. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, here, this, when he says one of, one of themselves, Paul is likely quoting a Cretan um, poet named Epimenides uh, that always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. He's pulling a line out of a, out of a poem. Um, and just for clarification, when he says a prophet of their own, he doesn't mean like a divinely inspired prophet of God. This isn't like Elijah, Elisha type deal. Uh, he, he means a prophet of the land, like a person of influence there. Somebody people would listen to is kind of the idea of what he's talking about. Um, but we've got to ask ourselves, what is he saying? Why is he quoting the guy? What, why is this line of this poem coming up as he's instructing Titus about how to deal with these guys? Uh, bottom line is he's saying that Epimenides is right. He's saying that they are evil beasts, <laughs> lazy gluttons, right? Uh, Paul is saying that these guys who are teaching that there is more needed than faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross for salvation, he says those guys, the ones doing that, they're liars who are evil beasts, and they're preying upon God's people. And because the reason they're doing that is they're, they're used to their cushy position where they taught people all their extra special super godly nonsense and they're too lazy to do anything else. These guys are like, it used to be my job to teach somebody all the stuff that you know, we supposedly had to do to get to God. Well, now we don't have to do that because Jesus did what he did, so now what am I going to do? I'm sure as heck not going to shepherd sheep or do some type of manual labor, so i got to figure out how to get some of this stuff back on where I have a purpose. And Paul's not happy about that because it's messing up whole families, and he loves them because he's their shepherd. Uh, so Paul is fighting mad because these dinglings are messing with God's people and God's message. He's not happy at all. Um, now you may be thinking something to this effect. Well, it doesn't matter what somebody does. You should never call someone names or degrade them. And I just want to say to you, just, just think through this with me, that Paul the apostle was not politically correct, okay? Nor was his master King Jesus, Right? Not politically correct. He said some wild stuff when it was warranted. Got super angry in public and let people know about it when it was warranted. He didn't sin in his anger, but he also wasn't worried about stepping on somebody's toes. He was going to tell the truth. And that was loving, because if Jesus did it, it was loving, right? Everyone come to the table and say that? The one who, who is the very source of love, the one who, because of him, we have the greatest expression of love that humankind has ever witnessed at the cross Whatever he did was loving. And so you got to square somehow your understanding of love with Jesus in the temple with the whip. I'm telling you, it does square. And if, you've gotten a, if you have a problem with it, it's because some, something isn't squaring for you. Something about what you understand about love isn't quite right. Um, so Paul the Apostle was not politically correct. King Jesus wasn't. And he's instructing his son in the faith, Titus, to take off the kid gloves when it comes to people messing with the pure truth of the gospel. Isn't he? Isn't that what he's saying? He says, reprove them sharply that they understand what's going on here, that this is serious, that they'll repent. Uh, we are called to be loving at all times, but what we have to do is quit letting the Care Bears define love for us. Love is defined through Christ. 
his life, his death, and his resurrection. You want to understand love? 1 John 3.16 says, look at the cross. That's how you're going to understand what love is. So if any idea you have about what love is somehow finds itself in conflict with the character of Jesus Christ himself, who is the very source of love, where's the problem? Not with Jesus, not with love. It might be the third part of the, the, the tripod there, and that's you, dear one. See, Paul's like all fired up in here, so I, just, I, I can't help it. Like, I'm jumping in there with him, right? So I'm not trying to have an attitude with you. It's just, look, I mean, I feel licensed to talk angry, so I'm taking it. <laughs> Paul was, right? I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at people that want to add something to the gospel. I'm mad with Paul. Because we're going to get to it in a second here. This problem isn't gone today. Unfortunately, Titus didn't solve it, right? There's still people today that want to detract from the finished work of Christ as if it's not sufficient. And they're, they're cretins. They're gluttons and liars. They're evil beasts. Woo, that's mean. That's name calling. You haven't been listening. Sometimes that's warranted. And it's loving, because if I love them, I want to say something sharp enough to them to get them to consider what the heck they're doing, because they're playing with fire. And what happens when you do that? You get burned, right? Okay, sometimes real love requires conflict. I think a lot of us don't believe that. We've seen too many things give us a different message than that, and they're just not right. So... I'll give you an example to make this real, okay? Because I'm giving it all kind of to you in theoretical form. Let's, let's have an example. Imagine somebody you really love. Just think about, <clears throat> let's say it's a person you would say you love the most in the world. Let's say they showed up at your house or they, they walked in the room and they said this to you. I had a dream last night, and in the dream, I could fly. And I think it was a message from God. And so to prove my faith in this dream message that I had, what I'm going to do today, I'm going to prove my faith. I'm going to find the tallest building I can. I'm going to jump because I believe God spoke to me in this dream, and I think I'll be able to fly. Okay? You guys with me? You brought yourself there emotionally? This, I know. This is weird. Just walk with me for a minute. Let me ask you something. Okay? Let's say this really happened. What is the loving move here? What's the loving move in this situation? I can tell you the politically correct move, especially in our current cultural landscape, and here it is. Here's the politically correct move, is to go along with it and not question what this other person has come to believe. That's what most people today would want you to believe is the right way to handle this situation. This, I had a dream, so now I can fly situation. I mean, really, you may hear people talk like this. Who are you to tell them they're wrong? Can't they decide for themselves what's true? I guess, but the most loving thing might not be for me to just silently nod my head at that, okay? Here's my question, is to go that route, to just not question it, just let them believe what they believe. Is that, is that tolerant, inclusive, all around nice and fuzzy approach, is that really the most loving approach here? Is the most loving thing to, to watch them jump and wave and smile as they smash into the sidewalk? Well, they believed it. Yes, they did. And now they're a puddle. Right? That wouldn't be the most loving thing to do. The most loving thing to do would be to pray for them first, a lot, because they're thinking crazy stuff, and then try to talk them out of this little interpretation of their dream. Right? And, and if this doesn't work, then offer to drive them to the tallest building around and instead, on the way, drop them off at a mental hospital. 
right? You pray for them, you try to talk to them and lovingly guide them out of this literal interpretation of their dream, then you're going to need help to hold them down until they think right. (laughs) Because I'm not going to let somebody I love go jump off a building because they had a dream and they think now God's going to make them fly. You understand what I'm saying? I realize this is an extreme example, but this is the way people think today. Well, you gotta be you gotta be tolerant and, and open-minded to what other people are thinking. Yeah, to a point, but if, if somebody's believing something that's gonna end up to their detriment, it's more loving for me to jump in there and even at the potential of them being upset at me for a minute, to say, hold on, I don't I don't think what that means is that you can fly now. I love you, and that's why I'm saying this. <laughs> At, at, at short, like if you really want to push this, let's try the deck first, right? Let's just try the deck rail, and then you can do the tallest building. We'll see how the deck rail goes, right? You got to do something to defer this idea that's popped into their, their blessed little head, okay? Um, and I would just say in that, in that situation, disagreeing with them and challenging them is the most loving thing to do. You can be mad or sad or disagree about that. I, I just, I don't see it, how it could be in either way. So here's the question. Why is Paul so mad that he would agree with someone who was calling people mean names? He's so mad that he told Titus to silence those who were teaching false doctrine, upsetting whole families. I don't think it was a mob hit, but it's strong language. You tell them to shut up. That's essentially what he's saying. (gasps) We don't see that in our house. I know. The kids aren't in here. Um, Why is Paul, remember this, why is Paul, he's the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians 13, which is some of the most eloquent and profound words on love that have ever been penned. Why is he so mad that he's doing all this type of stuff? What has him so fired up? Here's here's what it is, because Paul knows that when it comes to salvation, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. And he's not going to have it. He's not going to have families that he led to Christ be led astray by somebody that's going to violate that right there. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. And you want to get somebody that really loves people and loves Jesus and loves his gospel, you want to get them to the point where they're willing to talk like Paul's talking? Start trying to add to the gospel. It's not going to go well. I love you, but don't do that here. Okay? I'm not going to mob boss you either, but I'm going to come find you, and we're going to talk. And it won't be sunshine and rainbows. Don't do this. Don't try to add stuff to people other than faith in Christ for salvation because that is what the scriptures teach. Paul wouldn't have it. We won't have it. Uh, he knows that Jesus plus anything ruins everything, and that, that is why in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul said this, when I was with you, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That's why in his letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And if you would come to me today considering yourself too advanced in the things of God to be troubled with or to contemplate further something so basic as the gospel, I would lovingly say to you, repent, you fool." I said lovingly before I said it, right? So that means I can say it, I think, right? I can get away with just about anything if I put lovingly first. No, but I would. I would say, repent, you fool, and I would mean it. I'd look in your eyes when I said it. Because here's a couple of reasons why I would use that language. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. How many of you in here got, are going, doing so good that you can afford 
God Almighty to be in opposition to you. Let me see your hands shoot up there. Life's going so good. The rims are so shiny. Uh, everything's just, just so. No, I, if I don't have God at my back, pushing behind me and helping me every second of every single day, if I'm not empowered by his grace and I don't have his help every second of the day, I will crumble underneath the weight of this world. I need his help. I cannot dare for a second afford his opposition. And so I would, I would beg of you to be humble because God opposes the proud. That's why I would say, repent, you fool. And I would hope that you'd be cut to the heart and would repent. It's not for the sake of calling someone a name or taking license to name call. The hope here, the reason Paul's talking like he's talking is he needs people to understand this is serious stuff. This is, this is real deal. We're also told in 1 Peter, I'm, again, I'm, I'm dealing with the fact that you may have at some point been tempted to think that you are beyond the, the simple gospel, that you've, you, you're on to weightier and more important things than the gospel message. I would remind you as well that uh, in, in the book of 1 Peter, it says that even the angels long to look into the depth and glorious wonder of the gospel. Who's more privy to the overall narrative of God's plan of redemption and eternity on a general day, you think, you or an angel that's been around for the whole thing? Angels still long to look into the depth and beauty of the gospel. You have not ascended it. You've not got beyond it because the reality is every single day we ha we're, we're, we're faced with new situations where we need to take the grid and understanding of the gospel and apply it to that in order to navigate it correctly. We'll talk more about that. Let me just submit this to you. If the beauty of the gospel and its application to all of life are infinite, and I believe that they are, then you are no closer to exhausting it today than you were the very day you started to believe it. Right? So if the depth and the beauty of the gospel is never-ending, right? Think about jumping down a hole that never ends. You're going to fall now forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever. After a thousand years of falling, how much closer are you to the end? None, because it's just going to keep going. And so if the depths of the beauty of the gospel are a wellspring from which we will never get to the bottom, then you've gotten no closer to exhausting it today than you started believing, I don't care how many years ago it was. And so we can dig and we can seek and search and look with as much excitement 20, 50, 100 years in to following Christ and to the beauty of his gospel as we did the very first day we found out, what are you talking about? I can be forgiven of my sins. Jesus will accept me. You remember how you used to be hungry about that? Remember how you used to think, whoo, I can't believe he would accept me. You remember how you used to dig into those scriptures and you couldn't believe the beauty and the grandeur of the gospel, but then you, you got to the point, some of us, we started to feel like we had most of it pretty much figured out. And we start to get a little bit bored with it, start to quit thinking about, okay, am I really applying the gospel to this situation in my life, or am I just kind of going with the flow? We have not and will not forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever exhaust the beauty of the simple gospel. And so pursue it and live it and rejoice in it evermore each day. Isn't that great? Isn't that great that we have a promise that you're never going to, if you think that way, you're never concerned about being bored, being a Christian. There is always 
The gospel is a jewel with an unlimited amount of, of sides, man. You just keep spinning that thing, and the light hits it a different way, and life hits it a different way, and you understand the, the, the love and, and, the, and, and the depth and the incredible nature of what, what God did through Christ. And you're enamored with it anew each day. And your passion and your zeal and your love for Christ renews each day. Do, I, I believe, you don't have to, I believe I'm, I have the potential to love Christ more every day forever. And I want to. I think he's worthy of that. These issues that Paul had in Crete were not the first or last time that the pure gospel has been assaulted by liars, beasts, and gluttons. There are those today that would pay lip service to Christ and his gospel, but in practice, hear this, in practice at minimum, but oftentimes even in word, they will require something more than grace through faith in Christ alone to be saved. Some would say, yes, you must believe on Jesus, but you must also be baptized. Nope. Some would say, yes, you must believe on Jesus, but you really must also have this certain gift of speaking in tongues if you want to be saved. Nope. Some would say you must believe on Jesus and get those tattoos removed if you want to be saved. I don't think so. Some would say you have to believe on Jesus and be a part of a certain political party. I'm going to leave it. <laughs> Some would say, yes, you must believe on Jesus, but really also you need to be a part of only this church or this denomination if you really want to be saved. Some would say, yes, you must believe on Jesus, but also adhere to this certain number of doctrinal points explained in this exact way, or else you're not really a Christian. Some would say, yes, you must believe on Jesus, but also affirm this chart I have about how everything's going to go in the end, and you have to buy into my certain flavor of eschatology, or else you're not really a Christian. Paul would call all of them liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Every single one of them. Today, he'd still do it. He's around. Jesus would call them a brood of vipers. Why? Because there is only one by whom and through whom and to whom we are saved. His name is Jesus Christ. He's our King and Messiah. You go around trying to add anything else to that, I'm telling you, you're going to put yourself in this classification that you don't want to be in. They had Paul fired up and Jesus fired up and Titus fired up and everybody that knew what the heck was going on was not happy with these fellas. So strive hard to assess yourself. Be open with yourself. Do you, maybe even on the inside, maybe you don't voice it, but do you add other requirements other than faith in the finished work of Christ that somebody should be saved? Maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but maybe you really believe, yeah, well, you know, yeah, but... I know it's about Jesus, but if there's, any, if there's any of those in there, I'm asking you to lay them down because it's false. This tendency to add to the gospel is not uncommon. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is easy to sympathize with because we all have this tendency, no matter how robust our understanding of the great exchange that Jesus made with us, no matter how well we understand that, there's still this tendency to 
add to the gospel. Because here's the problem. We still live in a world where most of the time you get what you deserve. Maybe a dumb example, but I would just ask you. We don't have people lining up to pay other people's speeding tickets, right? Anybody seen that? Is there a line down at the courthouse? Stand here if you're here because you just feel moved to pay someone else's speeding ticket. No. If you sped, who's going to pay the ticket? You are, unless there's some weird extreme circumstance. I mean, that's just kind of the way the world works. You do the crime? Yeah, okay. Two of you have heard that. Good. <clears throat> some of you are still freaked out. This guy, this guy's yelling. He looks kind of mad. And, and I, I haven't seen Jesus look like that on the movies on, on you know, the made-for-TV things. Well, yeah, they, they, they miss some verses on those sometimes. Um, some of them are good. I'm not, you know, whatever. I sound like I'm really against TV. I have a TV in my house, okay? I'm not Amish. My kid's not running around with a bowl cut. Uh, it's, it's cool. Keep your TV. Um, so <laughs> this is easy to sympathize with. Uh, we all have this tendency. Um, so, like, for, you know, for example, people aren't lining up to pay other people's speeding tickets. Another example, you know, it's not often you hear a conversation where someone says, okay, uh, you know, hello there, young man. I, I've seen you've been playing video games and watching the, uh, you know, ever unimpressive selection of movies on Netflix for four weeks straight. And because of that, you have no money because you've not been working. So in light of all of those facts, why don't I pay your bills for the next month so you can continue in this unproductive behavior? Anybody ever heard a conversation like that? I haven't. I haven't. Maybe somebody didn't have the conversation. Maybe somebody's done it, and that doesn't help. But anyways, um, the bottom line is we live in a world where, for the most part, you got to do the right things to get the desired outcome. Yeah? That makes the gospel hard to understand. because, And, and this is why the gospel, which tells us that we were all imperfect and thus separated from our perfect God... Here's the problem, though. It refuses to give us a list of the right things to do to fix the problem. And so because of that, it can be hard for us to believe. So because of that, it's foolishness to those that don't believe. And so even for some of us that have come to believe it, we we're constantly pulled back towards this tendency to add to it because it's really hard to understand <clears throat> that I'm guilty, but someone else took care of it, and, and I just because I believe that, then I get to receive that. Not a whole lot of other exchanges happening like that, which I would argue is why everyone should serve Jesus. Because Christianity isn't like every other religion for the reasons I just told you, okay? Uh, no matter how much more good we are <clears throat> or how much less bad we are, we will not affect our eternal destiny by our works. Reconciliation and redemption are only accomplished by faith in what Jesus did and not at all by what we do. This is the gospel. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16 to you. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. He's still talking about people there. Uh... We know that Timothy had to deal with the same kind of people. Uh, Paul warned Timothy about those that were forbidding to marry. They were uh, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those that believe and know the truth. Uh, I think we need to say, unfortunately, we do have to say it. Paul is obviously not saying here that anything 
Anything that goes directly against God's character or commands is pure, right? He's not saying, you know, so the pure, all things are pure. He's not saying, well, just whatever you decide, right? Um, What he's addressing here is the things that these religious people who were more spiritual than God, uh, in their their own minds, they were more spiritual than God. They, They were forbidding these things. And because of that, they were defiled and unpure. They were trying to make everything unpure for everybody else. He's saying to those that are pure in their understanding of of Jesus and his gospel, they're not worried about not eating that or that. Uh, I'll say it another way. This is not your proof verse for debauchery. Okay, so if you saw to the pure, all things are pure, and your your gears started turning, okay, you know, you can't run around going, you know, yeah, man, I got Titus 115. So, so the pure, all things are pure, and so I'm going to take my pure self over here and look at some pure pornography. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay? Uh, if you try that or anything like it, I would just say to you, stop it, you evil beast. Right? Um, and I have a verse. Verse 12 says that if you act like an evil beast, I can call you one in love in the hopes that you turn from your evil beastie ways. Okay? So, if you try to turn this verse in Titus into a license to do whatever you want, um, you're a beast. Okay? (laughs) Verse 16, and not in a good way. I know in some corners of culture now, to be a beast is a good thing. I'm not talking about that. You're a beastie. Stop it. Uh, Verse 16 is in this context, it's, it's still talking about the guys professing Jesus with their mouths, but rejecting him by their works. Um, and if you're paying attention, you might have a question right there. Uh, you, you know, he's saying, if you look at verse 16, he's saying, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good work. That might seem a bit contradictory, and you could say or ask a question like, hey, I thought you said works didn't matter. Like, you've spent a bunch of time trying to tell us it's by grace through faith in Christ alone, but now it seems like he's, what's he doing here? He's saying that, you know, if these guys' deeds don't match up, well, then they're they're worthless. And so, you know, which one is it? Um, Doing good has nothing to do with how we are saved, okay? I'm explaining to you why this isn't a contradiction. Doing good has nothing to do with how we are saved. However, if we belong to Jesus because of the good he did, then our lives will reflect that as we become more and more like him. You see that? You could not, would not, will not be saved because you get good enough. But once Jesus comes and does what he does and loves you like he loves you, your deeds should start to show that that happened. This doesn't mean that we won't stumble. It just means that we will repent and trust his grace to help us go and sin no more. Paul has some pretty sharp words for people in this classification who profess to know God, but then deny him by their works. Um, And if Jesus has taken you from death to life, from darkness to light, and you even begin to understand how much it costs for him to do that, that you're going to know in the deepest part of your heart that you've been loved by him. And it's impossible not to love somebody that's loved you that much. And then your obedience to him flows out of your gratitude and your love for him instead of trying to earn love from him. Right? Obedience to Christ, our deeds should flow out of our love for him, 
not working to try to get love from him. He loves you. He proved it. He bled out for you. Okay? Verse 16 says that uh, people who profess to know God but deny him with their works are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. I would just say, dear Lord, may I never be in that category. I hope you would pray the same prayer. I don't ever want that alliteration to be true of me. I don't want the three Ds on me, right? Detestable. <laughs> what else do we have here? Disobedient and disqualified. Um, I want to I just say this, though. I think, I, I think it needs to be said. For those of you that have a tender conscience, don't ever change, first of all. And if you are in continual sin, stop today. But I want you to understand this distinction. Paul talking, I mean, Paul's talking crazy to and about these guys, right? These people that are trying to lead people astray. Paul is not holding punches. He's saying some wild stuff. I think justified. I, I need you to understand the distinction, though. The people he's talking about, these are not Christians struggling against sin and asking for God's help to stop because they genuinely love him. These are posers who are preying upon God's people and trying to lead them astray with their legalism so they follow after them instead of Jesus. Okay, so I don't want you to think, oh man, uh, I profess Jesus, I am struggling with this sin, I'm detestable, disobedient, and disqualified. I'm not trying to like let you off the hook. If, if, you're, if you're in continual sin, like press into God's grace and ask for his help and stop today because the sooner you stop, the less pain it's going to cause you. I promise, that's always true. But I, Paul's not talking about you when he's talking about somebody being worthless. When he's talking about being worthless detestable is somebody that would intentionally, oftentimes for sordid gain, lie to try to draw people away from Jesus to follow after them. Paul's got no tolerance for that. I think rightly so. On this idea of distorted gospel, uh, of a distorted gospel, the, the reality is that none of us really fully understand or walk it out perfectly. Um, Tertullian, he was a Christian writer and apologist in the second and third century. Uh, he said that just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite heirs. I'm going to read that one more time because I'm going to deal with it for a minute. This is what Tertullian said. Just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite heirs. Okay? I think he's right. As we talk through this, I want you to remember the premise from before. Um, you don't ever mature past the gospel as if it were just some simple starting point. Uh, on that, I want to read you a quote here from Tim Keller. He says this, The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. It's important. The key for thinking out the implications of the gospel is to consider the gospel a third way between two mistaken opposites. However, before we start, we must realize that the gospel is not a halfway compromise between the two poles. It does not produce something in the middle, but something different from both. The gospel critiques both religion and irreligion. Okay, we're going to work with that for a second. I think it's important. Um, the problem here was people adding to the gospel. That's what got Paul fired up. I want us to see that all of us have that tendency. Okay, That's what we're going to deal with. 
it flushes itself out in different ways. Um, so these thieves that pull us towards the right and the left, Tertullian said, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, the doctrine of justification, the gospel is also crucified between two thieves, and those two thieves are constantly stealing power from the gospel when people are pulled to the right and to the left. So what are they? What are the thieves? The thieves are moralism, could also be called legalism, if you like that word better. That's on the one side, and relativism on the other. So you've got moralism and relativism. These are the two thieves that steal away power from the gospel when we lean towards one or the other. So first of all, how does moralism steal power from the gospel? Moralism is the belief that we are accepted by God, other people, or ourselves through what we achieve. Moralists are not always religious, but when they are, they are normally very rigid and they are all about the rules. The problem with this is that it leads to one of two potential outcomes. Think through this with me. If you're very highly moralist, you're very rigid, you're about the rules, here's the two outcomes. Here's two possible things that happen out of that. Either A, you hate yourself because you cannot live up to the impossible standards that you create. So that's one option. Or you think you're better than everyone else because you think you have lived up to these standards. Those are the two possible outcomes of moralism. Both of these are prideful and self-focused, and it's interesting that insecurity and overconfidence can come from the same source. Moralism. Insecurity and overconfidence both can come from that understanding of the way things work. How does, relativ how does relativism steal power from the gospel? Relativists will often consider themselves non-religious and typically, they probably will be nicer than moralists, right? They're not going to run around typically calling people evil, lazy, gluttons, and beasts because they have no occasion to based on what they believe. They will talk a lot about God's love, but almost totally disregard his justice. When they say things like, God is love, so why doesn't he just accept everyone like they are? Uh, they don't understand that this makes the love of God less beautiful, they don't understand that just because God is sovereign doesn't mean he can do absolutely everything. I'm going to let that hang on you for a minute because if you were asleep, you didn't catch it. If you weren't asleep, you're wondering what the heck I just said. Because we're very fond of saying God can do anything, right? And in one sense, I know what we're saying, and, and it is true, but here's the reality. You might say, wait, what? Did you say God can't do absolutely everything? I thought we were talking about God. Yes, we are, but here, I'll give you an example. God cannot be unjust. He can't do it. His character and his very nature limits him. He cannot be unjust. It's impossible. Which means he cannot leave sin unpunished. If God cannot be unjust, he cannot just let sin go. He, out of his very character and nature, sin must be dealt with. Okay? Here's, a, here's the good news for us. He also cannot be unloving, which means he sent Jesus to be punished for us. Do you understand that that's what's happening? That's why the gospel's sin had to be dealt with, man. There had to be a price paid. That's, I don't think we always make that connection. What's the whole thing about it? I think half the times we think like relativists. relativists why, why God's almighty. Why couldn't he just, psh, you know? No, man. God is so perfect He's so perfect in his justice that he cannot not deal with sin. Sin must be dealt with. But he's also so loving that he had to make a way that he could step in and take the punishment. 
Perfect in justice, perfect in love. The relativist often denies the existence of God, but almost always denies the existence of sin. If each person truly can determine for themselves what is right and wrong, and God is just a jolly grandpa that just loves everybody, then his love is much less profound and beautiful because it cost him nothing to love us. Do you see that? If God is just and loving and created us in his image and thus calls us to submit to his standard of right and wrong and had to sacrifice himself in order to save us from the punishment we deserved because we didn't, then that is the greatest love anyone has ever known. God called us to submit to his standard of right and wrong. He had to die in our place so that we didn't face the punishment for that. He demanded that justice be done but he paid the price that it could be. Moralism and relativism both steal power from the gospel in different ways, but the ultimate result is the same. They both are an attempt to retain lordship over yourself. The moralist believes that he saves himself through his own excellence and thus has no need for Jesus. Anybody ever try to talk to somebody about Jesus and they said, I'm, listen man, I'm a good person. If you ever have tried to talk to somebody about Jesus, you've heard that. <laughs> The only way you've missed that conversation is by never trying to talk to somebody about Jesus. The moralist believes he saves himself through his own excellence and thus has no need for Jesus. And the relativist believes there's no right or wrong and that tolerance and acceptance is the highest moral virtue, which of course removes any need for Jesus. Both are a tragic departure from the truth that God has revealed in his word. May we be a people who both say the truth and live in light of the truth. May we be a people who are willing to speak the truth in love, even if that means conflict. Because our love is real and modeled after God's. May we be a people who are ever enamored with the complex and infinite beauty of the gospel by which we are saved. And spend every day of our lives learning how to apply it to every situation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. Lord God, I thank you that you are not as one-dimensional as we sometimes make you out to be. I thank you, Lord God, that your word is true. I thank you, Lord God, that uh, Paul, with his fatherly anointing, wrote to Titus. I thank you that Paul was a real shepherd. I thank you, Lord God, that you had seized his heart, that you had taking him from somebody who hated your people to somebody that loved your people so much, he was willing to fight if somebody was lying to them or deceiving them or trying to draw them away. Lord, may that heart be more and more in men who claim to follow you. May we not fall into the temptation to just be flaccid and meek all the time because somebody told us that's the way you are. Lord, I thank you that you're the most tender and loving and merciful and beautiful father anybody's ever known. But I thank you, Lord, you do also discipline those whom you love. I thank you, Lord, you do. You oppose the proud. I thank you that you bring opposition to those that would oppose your children. I thank you, Lord, that anger is a part of your character. I'm as thankful for that as I am that you're loving. I thank you, Lord, that you are perfect in justice. That you're not just going to let things go. I thank you that you sent Christ to die in our place to take the punishment that every single one of us deserved. 
Lord, may we treasure your gospel. Please help us. We are so prone. We live in a time that our hearts and our eyes and our minds are so distracted. Lord, there's something new every 15 seconds trying to draw our attention. God, please help us because because of that, we have this idea we're, we're quickly bored. And Lord, we're used to being able to get to the bottom of stuff really fast. And, and Lord, I just ask that we would, for the rest of the time that we're breathing and then for all of eternity, that we would rejoice in the privilege of exploring the beauty of your precious gospel. Thank you that it's there to explore. We give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.